Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. Enjoy the message. So as I said, we are in Matthew chapter 27. Matthew 27 begins with Jesus beginning to appear before three different religious trials. Uh, so he'll go before Annas and a few others. He'll go before Caiaphas, the high priest, and a few others. And then he'll go before the entire Sanhedrin. That was required, that he had to go before all 70 of the ruling elders of the city of Jerusalem. And it was that group of people that ultimately decided that Jesus had committed a, a sin or Jesus had committed a crime that was worthy of death. They had convicted him, as it says there in the passage, of blasphemy and that he would have to be executed because of that blasphemy. Now, they had decided long ago that Jesus had to be destroyed. That's their word, that this man had to be destroyed. I can't imagine saying that about anybody. And yet that's what they said about the Christ, the Messiah from heaven, that he would have to be destroyed. And so Jesus appears before each of those people. Matthew 27, 1 says, when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. That means they had determined, they had decided that the, the court case itself, the verdict had come in and they had taken counsel against Jesus to put him to death. But as I pointed out, since Jerusalem, since the Jews were under Roman occupation, it wasn't their prerogative, they didn't have the right to put anybody to death. Now, we do see in the book of Acts that they actually put people to death, but in this instance here, Jerusalem, all the authorities around, they know they don't have the authority to put this man to death, and so they have to deliver him over to the Roman governor. If you look at 27.2, we looked at this last week, but it says, and so they bound Jesus, and they led him away, and they delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. And essentially, that brings us to where we left off. Now, we know that there's a little break between verses 3 and 10 where you sort of have, well, this is happening here, this is happening over there. But essentially, verse 2 moves right into verse 11. So look at verse 11 with me. It says, now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him, you have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate, the governor, said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now, I mentioned to you that Jesus is going to appear before six different tribunals, six different court cases, three religious, three political. Here we're going to have the first of the three political trials. Now, Matthew's not going to give us the details of all three of those political trials. He leaves one out altogether, and he actually blends two other trials into one trial. So Matthew doesn't give us the details of all three trials. You have to look to the other Gospels to get a sense of the entire evening. It's estimated that Jesus walked over two and a half miles that particular evening, going back and forth from this trial to that trial to this place to that place. So Jesus is going to move all over Jerusalem, being led essentially in handcuffs or in chains, going to these various places here. This is what Matthew tells us in his passage. He tells us that Jesus appeared before Pilate, Again, Pilate's the governor of Jerusalem. He's a Roman. He's not a Jew. He's a Roman uh, governor there in Jerusalem. That's verses 11 to 14. Then in verses 15 to 23, Pilate's going to talk about the increasing hostility in the interaction that he is having with the Jewish leaders. It seems like it's getting out of control. We'll read and talk about that. And then in verses 24 to 26, we read about Pilate deciding to turn Jesus over to crucifixion. 
And so that gives you a general idea of what happened that evening, but there's actually quite a bit more that is going on. And to get the full picture, it helps to turn over to the book of Luke. You don't have to turn there necessarily, but it helps us to look at what the book of Luke has to say. What becomes very clear is that what Pilate is trying to do is get himself out of the equation altogether. Pilate's in the midst of this. It's an awkward situation. He has an angry mob that is forming and that is developing, and he knows that he has an answer for that angry mob that is different from what that angry mob wants. And so what Pilate just simply wants to do is get out of it altogether. And so he passes it on to another political leader whose name is Herod. Now remember, Herod is a title. And so he passes it on to the Herod at the particular time there and let him deal with it. And we read in the passage there, Luke 23, 7, it says, Now when Pilate learned that Jesus belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, remember Jesus from Galilee? Herod was the ruler of the region of Galilee. I forget which of the Herods it was. There's a few of them. But he happens to be down in Jerusalem. And so Pilate's like, this is fantastic. I'll just turn it over to the Herod. Jesus is from Herod's region. Let Herod take care of it. So it says, now when Pilate learned that he had belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that particular time. And Luke will then go on to tell us that Herod isn't much help. Herod is excited to see Jesus. Herod has heard about Jesus. Herod comes running out thinking, oh good, Jesus will do all sorts of miracles and magic tricks, and this will be fun. I've been wanting to get connected with this guy for a long time. And Jesus doesn't do any of those things. And Herod eventually will turn from being sort of excited to see Jesus to kind of disgusted with Jesus, and essentially he'll say, get out of here. Just get him out of my face. Send him back to Pilate. And so that's something that Matthew doesn't tell us happens in that particular evening. So there's appearance before Pilate, then an appearance before Herod, and then a final appearance before Pilate. So try to just put all of that together. Now, you're probably familiar with the name Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate is probably the most famous or well-known today of all the Roman authorities that existed in that day. We all kind of know the name of Pontius Pilate, primarily because his name appears in the Christian creeds that have made their way down through history. And so if you went to some sort of mainline church in your day, Catholic, Presbyterian, something like that, Lutheran, you're probably familiar with this, and you could probably say it from memory and sort of in that, that droning sound where you're not even listening to the words anymore. Uh, but they're beautiful words if you take the time to consider them. It says, I believe in Jesus Christ. I'll do it like I used to do it. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord. So anyway, uh, let's do it the proper way. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried, and he descended to the dead. So here's Pilate wanting nothing to do with this man and with this court case, trying to pass it off to another, trying to stay out of it altogether, and yet his name goes down in infamy throughout history as the one who crucified the Christ, suffered under Pontius Pilate. Now, Pilate was a leader that was on thin ice with his bosses. On Pilate's first day of work, essentially, um, but his first day there in Jerusalem, Pirate, or excuse me, Pilate came walking into the city sort of in a parade. I'm going to be in charge of this town, and I'm going to show you with like pomp and circumstance how great of a guy that I am. And so he comes into the particular town, and he comes in with his guys carrying essentially flags, 
Roman flags. We are the Roman government. We have conquered this particular area. At the top of those little flagpoles were images of eagles, or they were eagles, kind of uh, carved out, gold-covered. Well, that was considered idolatrous to the Jewish people. But it is what it is until the Romans took the parade right to the Temple Mount area. And so now here are the Romans that are occupying the Jews, parading in their new governor and going to the Temple Mount with their forms of idolatry. And that was more than the Jewish people could stand. And so the Jewish people, knowing we're not going to win this, decided anyway, I'm willing to die for this. And so they began to riot. And Pontius Pilate initially is like, nobody's going to riot on my watch. So he rounds them all up, and he brings them to sort of this, like, amphitheater kind of a place. He brings them to this place. He has them trapped in there, and he essentially threatens each of them. I'm going to kill you. You're going to be killed unless you apologize for your behavior. And they, they say that the Jews laid themselves down on the ground, and they said, chop our heads off and kill us. We will not take it back. And Pilate's like, you better take it back. And they're like, we won't take it back. Well, if you don't, I'm going to get you. Come and get us. And Pilate finally says, fine, or whatever. And he lets them all go. Now, word begins to filter back to Rome. Did you hear what happened in Jerusalem? Did you hear how Pilate took on the people on his first day of work, or roughly first week of work, and how the people stood up to him and how he eventually gave in to him? And so now Pilate, he gets a little sort of demerit in his employee file. It gets thrown in there that he caused a big stir and a big mess there in Jerusalem. And Pilate is perceived to be a little too weak or too permissive. And so that's that. A year or so after that, Pilate's only been in leadership probably for two or three years by the time Christ comes along, or Jesus in, in the instance that we're looking at. So a couple of years after that, maybe even a year after that, Pilate decides, all right, we got off on a bad foot. So he decides he's going to bring the famed Roman aqueducts. You're familiar with the Roman aqueducts, essentially piping in fresh water, that he's going to bring the famed Roman aqueducts to Jerusalem. And so all the Jewish people, you're going to be able to get clean water, fresh water. You're going to be so happy. You're going to love it. And so Pilate does that to sort of appease the people. I'll try and win them over with a little honey or something or clean water. Problem is, Pilate reasoned, hey, I'm bringing clean water to you Jewish people. You should have to pay for that. I'm going to take money out of the temple treasury. The Jew- Oh, I heard some feelings over there. The Jewish temple treasury. So, so now Pilate essentially went to the local church and took all the money out of the offerings to pay for this public works project. And the Jewish people said, that sounds awesome. No, they didn't. Thank you. Over there. Jewish people were like, no way, man. You're not taking money out of our temple treasury. And so what did the Jewish people do? They rioted. Now, that happened before, and Pilate kind of eventually gave in. This time, Pilate didn't give in, and there was quite a bit of bloodshed as a result uh, of his response to their rioting. And word filtered back to the Roman emperor, did you hear what Pilate did in Jerusalem? He's killing people over there because he wanted to take money out of their temple. What did he expect that they were going to do? And another demerit gets put in his folder, you see. Now, a third incident takes place here, and it's the final blunder Uh, that Pilate is involved with. And this one has to do with the fact that it was time to replace the shields of the Roman soldiers. On on the front of the shield was essentially the opposite of an engraving. I forget what that is when it comes off uh, of the... Anybody know? There's a name for it. Okay, well, relief, that's it. Yeah, that's familiar. Um, And so anyway, there's an image of the emperor. Now, the Romans thought that the emperor was a god, 
And so now here are all these Roman soldiers, some of which are up in the Temple Mount area, and they have the image of their idol. They have the image of the emperor of Rome. And the Jewish people didn't like that. And so the Jewish people, they rioted uh, once again. And, and it became crazy once again in Jerusalem. And word eventually filtered back to Rome. And another demerit was put into the, the file of Pilate. And essentially it became the case, Pilate doesn't know what he's doing. He can't maintain order in Jerusalem. And essentially they said, one more incident and you're done. Now I bring all of that up. Because what's about to happen with the crucifixion is very close to develop into one more incident in the city of Jerusalem. There's millions, not millions, but there's hundreds and thousands of soldiers that are there. The place is on edge already. There's uh, probably 2.5 million or so people, Jewish people, that had come to the city of Jerusalem for this particular feast that is going on. And Pilate is painfully aware of his need to be very careful and tread very lightly how he moves forward. Because if anything gets out of control, he's going to be in a lot of trouble and probably lose his job. And so Matthew gives us a little bit of details here, as I said, of Jesus' appearance before Pilate. He really kind of blends them into one. And what we learned from the Luke account that I referenced earlier is that when the Jewish leaders brought Jesus before Pilate, they leveled against him three charges. We read this in 23.2. We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Notice again, nowhere in there is mention of the fact that they convicted him of blasphemy because Pilate wouldn't have cared that they convicted him of blasphemy. So what? There's lots of gods that are out there. This guy wants to be a god, let him be a god. He wouldn't have cared about that. And so they bring against Jesus political charges, three different charges. First, we see in 23.2, this man is misleading our nation. And by that, what they mean is he's leading the people toward insurrection against the Roman government. Not that he's misleading them uh, with bad biblical teaching or something. He's misleading our nation in a way that Pilate will care. He's leading them toward political insurrection. The second thing, they accuse Jesus of forbidding the people to pay taxes to the Romans. Which, by the way, is exactly the opposite of what Jesus did. You may recall Jesus said earlier, give the Caesar what is Caesar's, give the God what is God's. But they accuse him of uh, forbidding the people of paying taxes. And then the last thing we see in verse 2, they say that he declares himself to be a king. And there was just one king, all right, even though that term was used uh, to describe different people lower than the emperor. There was just one emperor. And Jesus declaring himself to be a king, they bring that charge against him as well. Amen. Now, Matthew, good time for a sip of water. Matthew will tell us in verse 12 that initially Jesus was silent through the whole process. He doesn't give an answer. And so that, and we'll see, that causes uh, Pilate to marvel. You're on trial for your life, and you're not going to try and defend yourself or whatever. But eventually, Pilate will point blank ask Jesus, all right, what do you say? What say you? Are you the king of the Jews? He'll ask him uh, in verse 11. Pilate points out that before answering Pilate's question, Jesus asks Pilate one. Did I say that right? Yeah. Before answering Pilate's question, Jesus asks Pilate a question. John tells us, the Gospel of John tells us that prior to giving him an answer, Jesus said, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Are you the king of the Jews? 
Did you say this on your own accord, Jesus asked Pilate, or did others say that about you? Essentially, I think Jesus is saying this, do you really want to know? Do you really want to know if I'm the king of the Jews? Are you just asking because other people have brought it up? Because if you really want an answer, I'll give you an answer to your question. Do you say this of your own accord? Well, no real answer happens there. There's a little more interaction that goes on. And then Jesus finally answers the question. He says, you have said so. Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so. He says, yes, I am. I'm the king of the Jews. Now, you would expect that immediately Pilate would say, well, then, if you want to be a king, let's go to war. We win, you lose, you die. But Pilate doesn't respond that way initially. He's eventually going to say, I I find the man not guilty. Because Pilate is realizing that what they're saying, that is, he says he's a king, and what that means is very different from uh, a threat politically. Jesus wants to be some king religiously, fine. Let him be some king religiously. Pilate's not worried that Jesus is a threat politically, and so he says, I haven't found any guilt in this particular person. He knows that he's not a a threat. John 18, 38 says, after he said this, Pilate, he went back outside to the Jews, and he told them, I find no guilt in this man. I find no guilt in him. Yes, he said he's a king, but it's not one that I'm worried about. He's not a threat against me politically. Now, the people are not satisfied. And the people, well, okay, found him not guilty. We'll just move on. Now the people, they begin to grumble. They begin to complain. Pilate comes to the end of himself, it seems. He doesn't really know what to do any longer. He certainly doesn't want to offend the growing crowd that has gathered. And yet at the same time, he finds this man as having done nothing worthy of death. And so it seems almost as if Pilate is saying, look, this is getting out of hand. This is getting out of control. I can see that this guy has done something that you don't like, but he hasn't done something worthy of Roman execution. This is getting out of control. I'll have him beaten, I'll have him flogged, and then I'll release him. Will that satisfy everyone? Pilate is now the guy in charge asking everybody else for permission as to how to run his uh, country or his city. And he's making some huge mistakes. And so he says, I'll have him flogged. Now, I base that on Luke 23. Let me read a few verses in Luke 23. It says, Pilate then called together the chief priests, the rulers of the people, said to them, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving of death has been done. I will therefore punish him and release him. Now, I would add, nothing deserving of punishment has been done, and yet Pilate, it seems like he's trying to appease both sides. He's not guilty. I'm not going to execute him, but I'll beat him, send him a message, teach him a lesson on your behalf, and then everyone will be happy. Okay, does that sound good? Everybody will be happy? And the people say, no. It seems like he's, he's hoping the cooler heads of the crowd or the cooler heads of the religious leaders will prevail but we see that the religious leaders are not interesting, and that not interested, and that f- causes Pilate to have to go to Plan B, verse fifteen. Now, at the feast of the the governor, excuse me, at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner that they wanted, and they and they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, "Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus?" who was called the Christ, for he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. And so, knowing that Jesus was innocent, Pilate now appeals to the crowd. 
So the religious leaders, they've made up their mind. No one's going to think with cooler heads or whatever. So let me just go to the whole crowd. So Pilate goes out to the whole crowd. He reminds them at this time they have this privilege, really, where Pilate will release one prisoner that the crowd asks for in association with the priest or with the uh, Passover. And so he says, which prisoner would you like me to release? Think of it like a get-out-of-jail-free card. It doesn't even matter if the guy did it or didn't do it. You just pick one guy that you want us to release, and we'll release that guy. And so Pilate goes to the crowd expecting that they're going to say Jesus. And he does an interesting thing. He takes the two most opposite people that you could possibly pick. He picks a guy by the name of Barabbas, and he picks Jesus. He picks the guy that was a murderous insurrectionist, and he picks the man that had gone around feeding the multitudes, healing many with afflictions, and the one that could even raise people back to the dead. He takes two guys that are completely opposite of one another. The answer should be obvious. Who do you want me to release to you, this guy or this guy, Barabbas or Jesus? And he does this because he could see through the motivations of the religious leaders. Again, it says in verse 18, he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Not because he really had done anything wrong, but he wasn't one of them. And so that's why the religious leaders delivered up Jesus. And so he hopes that the people could, uh, could step in and intervene. And once again, he's trying to pass the buck. Let somebody else make the tough decision. Uh, this way, when, he, when Jesus is released, well, and the religious leaders are upset, Pilate could say, well, it wasn't me, it was the people. Or if Herod would have said, let him go, it wasn't me, it was Herod. Be mad at him. He's trying to pass the buck instead of taking a stand here. And again, he wants nothing to do with the case. Now, on top of that, we learn in Matthew that his wife sends word to him. And it's one thing to make other people upset. You don't want to make your wife upset. All right? That's as a general principle, men. You can write that down as a note here. And so he knows he's going to have to go home. And his wife there, he's going to have to deal with her. And his wife had come to him and said, notice verse 19, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now, Pilate's wife was a Gentile that had converted to Judaism, and from Judaism, historically, we believe she converted to Christianity. And so as a person that was searching for some things, apparently the Lord, it's not biblical necessarily, but apparently the Lord was doing a work within her and had revealed some things to her in a dream. And so she brings that information to her husband, and now her husband's got these people yelling at him, these people pressing him, the facts in front of him, and now word coming from his wife, and Pilate just doesn't want anything to do with any of this. And he wishes, I wish I got sent somewhere else to work. Why did I have to get sent to Jerusalem? Now, unfortunately, so that's why he goes to the crowd. Now, unfortunately for Pilate, the religious leaders had already stirred up the crowd, and they seemed to have anticipated that Pilate was going to come out and ask for someone to be released. And so they had already stirred up the crowd that when he asked, you asked for Barabbas. Verse 20, it says, the chief priests, the elders, they persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to destroy Jesus. Now, Matthew already told us this about Barabbas. In verse 16, he told us that Barabbas was a notorious prisoner. (coughs) John tells us that Barabbas was a thief and a robber. And then Mark tells us that he was a rebel and a murderer. 
and that he was involved in a recent insurrection attempt there in Jerusalem. And so you have this guy that is described as a thief, a robber, a notorious prisoner, a rebel, and a murderer. And that's who they tell the crowd to yell out. When he says, who should I release? You yell out Barabbas. And so Pilate calls out to the crowd, who do you want me to release? And he must have been shocked to hear them yell back, release to us Osama bin Laden. Release to us Timothy McVeigh. Release to us, you know, the worst criminal that you can think of. That's who you want? Well, what about Jesus? He'll even say that. What about Jesus? He'll, he'll throw there. He asks a second time. The governor said to them again, which of the two do you want me to release to you? Maybe, maybe you misheard my question. Maybe you thought I said, who do you want me to keep in prison? I'll ask again, which of the two do you want me to release to you? And they yelled out, Barabbas. Again, they cry out, Barabbas. So now this is definitely not going as Pilate had planned. He's rapidly losing control of the situation. He's realizing this is a mess. Verse 22, notice this is basically what he says, well, you guys tell me what I should do. Just tell me what you want me to do and I'll do it, he says. Look at verse 22a, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? Maybe they'll say, well, release him also. We want two this time or something. But instead they, they yell back, let him be crucified. Let him be crucified. Let him be crucified. Why? Notice he says, why? What evil has he done? But as Matthew points out, the crowd just yelled louder and louder and louder. They were insistent. It says they shouted all the more, crucify him, crucify him. Now you've got to imagine Pilate in the prison, not too far away. He heard, excuse me, not Pilate, Barabbas in the prison, not too far away. The last things he heard yelled out by the crowd were the name Barabbas and crucify him. And so he's sitting in prison thinking they're coming to get me at any moment here. And Pilate can't believe that they're calling for Barabbas to be freed and Jesus to be crucified. They, the second question he may have expected, they would be, well, no, whatever. whatever. But they come back stronger saying, we want this man, uh, to, Jesus, to be crucified. And Pilate, knowing that th- this situation has a potential now of developing into another riot, realizes he just needs to give in to the crowd. If this is what the crowd wants, this is what the crowd wants. And so Pilate gives in, and he pronounces that Jesus is to be crucified. Verse 24, so when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, Pilate took water and he washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on our our heads, on us and on our children. And then Pilate released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered Jesus to be crucified. If only it was as easy as washing your hands and all the guilt being off of you. Pilate thought he could do that, but the reality is Pilate is responsible essentially for the crucifixion of Christ because he would not take a stand as a leader and do what he knew to be right. And despite his exclamation of innocence, his name has forever been linked with the sentence of the crucifixion of the Messiah and through the, uh, the creeds that I mentioned to you earlier. And I would suggest to you Pilate can serve as a simple lesson to us to take care of the voices that we give heed to. Because even if the voices are super loud and even if the majority of people are calling for one thing in particular, that does not necessarily mean that's the right choice. And so Pilate gives in to the loudest voices 
instead of, if you will, that still small voice that was inside of him, even if that was just his own conscience. And Pilate makes a significant mistake. He condemns an innocent man to die. Remarkably, in verse 25, notice the Jewish people cry out, let his blood be on us and on our children. Now, nobody in their right mind would cry that out if they really realized what it was that they were saying. They're essentially saying, we're going to murder the Messiah and let the consequences fall on us and on our children. Obviously, they don't really know what they are saying here, but they call this thing out. Sadly, through the centuries, misguided Christians have used that phrase to persecute the Jewish people. Various forms of anti-Semitism have risen up because people said, look, you murdered the Messiah, Jews. You murdered the Messiah. You called upon uh, a curse upon yourselves, and now we are implementing that particular curse. That's a mistake. First off, I don't think you can call a curse upon yourself anyway. But even if God were going to use what they said against them, that doesn't mean it's the church's responsibility to carry out that judgment against them. Anti-Semitism is wrong. It's not the responsibility of the church. It's the responsibility of the church to stand up against anti-Semitism. And so don't misunderstand that verse there as some have through the centuries. And so Barabbas is released. Jesus is delivered over to the Roman soldiers. Look at verse 26. They say they're going to scourge Jesus. And having scourged Jesus, they delivered him up to be crucified. Now, none of the gospel writers really give us a lot of information about the details of this scourging. Honestly, I'm glad that they didn't. If you happen to see the movie, The Passion of the Christ, you have a pretty good idea of what goes on in the scourging. You understand how cruel and how barbaric the practice actually was. I think the scourging scene in that movie is perhaps one of the most difficult, and it goes on for probably 30 minutes, is perhaps one of the most difficult parts in the entire movie uh, to watch. The, the Romans referred to scourging or flogging. Some of your versions have, versions have flogging. Uh, they referred to scourging or flogging as the half-death. Scourging was actually considered a part of the crucifixion process. Every person that was going to be crucified by the Romans would first go through the flogging or the scourging. They actually had a group of professional scourgers. These were Roman soldiers who all they did was prepared people for crucifixion. And so as you can imagine, if that's all you do every day of your work week, you get pretty good at what you're doing. They used what was called a flagellum. It was essentially, it was about a six to eight inch handle. And from that came leather. And from the leather, it usually broke off into fingers, if you will. Uh, sometimes they referred to it as the cat of nine tails, that it would have nine tails that would come off of it, fingers that would come off of it. They might be an additional 12 to 15 inches in length. Those pieces of leather would have been embedded with broken pieces of pottery, with uh, stones, with little, they would take essentially little round uh, stones, and that would kind of uh, hit the body first and sort of open it up. And then the shards, the bones, the glass, the pottery would rip into the skin. It was long enough so that when they used the whip, it would wrap around the body. And then they would pull it and it would rip open the person's skin. It wasn't uncommon for people that were being flogged 
to die in that particular process. But the whole purpose of the flogging was to weaken the body for the crucifixion that would take place. Crucifixion, people have survived on a cross for over three days. So crucifixion wasn't something that immediately killed a person. But the purpose of the scourging was to cause the crucifixion to be sped up, the death uh, to be sped up. And Jesus went through this particular process. We also know this, that the Roman soldiers used scourging as a means of getting the criminal to confess other crimes, unsolved crimes that they had done. And so as they're being whipped, the Roman soldiers would essentially say to them, you know, confess other crimes and we'll take it easy on you. And as they would, if the person wouldn't confess, they were going to be strong, they were going to stand, they would whip harder and harder and harder, ripping the skin off of the person's back and sides and legs and and everything there. Now, Jesus had nothing to confess. He committed no other crimes. He committed no other sins, which means the Roman soldiers would have been angrier and angrier and angrier at the proud arrogance of this man that even in this, he won't confess his sins. And so they would have hit him harder and would have hit him harder and would have hit him harder. We know that Jesus was so weakened after this process that the standard procedure of the, the victim having to carry his own cross, that that was bypassed in the case of Christ because he could not carry his own cross, that he had been beaten so bad as a result of it. And so they scourged the Lord Jesus And satisfied that Jesus was thoroughly weakened, they stopped the process and they prepared to deliver him over to be crucified. But first, not before they humiliate him. Verse 27, then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before Jesus. And they stripped Jesus and they put a scarlet robe on him and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and they put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on Jesus, and they took the reed, and they struck Jesus on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe, and they put his own clothes on him, and they led him away to be crucified. And so here you have these Roman soldiers determined that they would humiliate the one that their own governor had determined was innocent, that they would humiliate this man, and they strip him down there naked, and then they put on him a royal robe. The, script, the verse 27 says that the full battalion of soldiers surrounds Jesus. Remember, that's about 600 men. That 600 men surround our Lord, who is, has been beaten and pulverized, standing there in the midst of them, initially naked. Then they put on this, ro- this uh, scarlet robe on him. They say, look, if you're going to be a king, then you certainly need your royal robes. Of course, every king needs a crown. And so they take some thorn branches, some of the thorns indigenous to that area. They're uh, essentially an inch and a half, two inches long. They're like little nails. You can, you can go over and you can grab them now, and you can try and break them with your fingers, and they don't break. They're rock solid almost. And they took together these branches and they weaved them into a little crown of sorts and they shoved that down upon the head of this king of the Jews. And then they gave him a reed. A reed is like a stick, essentially, a big staff of sorts. And they give him a reed. And there they begin to laugh at him. 600 men surrounding our Lord, laughing at him and mocking him. And again, remind yourself, at any moment, Jesus could have stopped all of this. And yet he doesn't. 
They fall down before him, as it says in verse 29, and they say, Hail, King of the Jews. And standing there, most pitifully, was a beaten and bloody and swollen man. The prophet Isaiah says this about him, that his appearance was so marred that it was even beyond human semblance. That you would look at this man's face and you couldn't even tell that it was a human being how beaten and how swollen and how pulverized he was. It says his form was beyond that of the children of mankind. Verse 50, chapter 53, 3 says that he was despised and rejected by men, that he was a man of sorrows, that he was acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we had, we had esteemed him not. And so having had their longing for mockery and humiliation satiated, the Romans finally say, all right, we're done. They pull the robe off of him. They spit on him. They take the reed that they had given him as a scepter, and they began to hit him on the head with that, verse 30 says. And verse 31, and when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe, put on his clothes, and they led him away to be crucified. Now here's a question for you to consider How do we know about all of these events that took place within the Roman praetorium? There were no Jews in there. There were none of Jesus' disciples in there. The only people that were inside of the jail were the Roman guards. And yet we know some pretty detailed information. And I would suggest to you the reason why we know some pretty detailed information is sometime later some of the soldiers that were participating in this converted to the faith and began to share what happened in that place. And God, in his mercy, was even willing to forgive those that were doing the things that they were doing to him in the last moments of his life. What a good Lord we serve. Now, as I said, adding insult to injury, they make the victim carry his own cross, his own means of execution. Jesus could not do so, as it says in verse 32, So they compel a man to do so. Now, uh, a lot of times we see pictures where Jesus is carrying a full T cross. Um, That that wasn't actually likely what happened. Uh, The cross, the the upright, I forget the name of it or whatever, but the upright there, that would normally stay in place at the place of execution. uh, And the victim would just simply carry the cross bar. And what they would do is they would put it on his shoulders, they would put his hands around it where they would tie his hands, uh, and then he would have to go and carry it. I say he, women weren't allowed to be crucified uh, under the Roman government, only men. And so there Jesus, normally he would have had to carry it. The Roman soldiers also put a little rope around their ankle, and then for fun, they would pull the rope and the fellow would fall forward, unable to protect himself, fall on his face with 75, 80 pounds of weight coming down on the back of their head and knocking him down. But Jesus has been so beaten already, he can't carry that crossbar. So they make a man by the name of uh, Simon of Cyrene carry it. Now, Cyrene is a place in northern Africa. So it seems that this is a fella who had come to Jerusalem, that he had been a Jewish convert, had come to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast. That's why the, the city has swelled in size or swollen in size because of all the people that had come. And so here Simon just finds himself in Jerusalem along the route of this crucifixion. It was about three-tenths of a mile to get from where the Roman praetorium was to get to the place where Jesus was crucified. And Simon, all of the commotion, finds himself there. 
And the Roman soldier, essentially, all they had to do was take their scepter or sword and put it on the shoulder of a person, a subject, and say, carry this for me. And remember when Jesus said, if somebody compels you to go one mile, you go with them too? That's what he's referring to. They could make you walk up to one mile carrying something for a Roman soldier. And so apparently a Roman soldier comes to Simon, puts the sword on his shoulder, and he said, carry this man's cross for one mile as far as, far as he could go. It was three-tenths of a mile. And so Simon, coming to celebrate the Passover of the Lamb of God, finds himself right in the middle of the Passover of the Lamb of God, actually carrying the cross of Christ. That's Simon of Cyrene. It's interesting that we know his name. It's just not some random fella. It's Simon from Cyrene. Mark will tell us that he was also the father of Rufus and Alexander. That seems like a lot of information for some random guy. The reality is Simon, no doubt, converted to the Christian faith. Simon's children converted to the Christian faith, and they were well known to the believers of the first century. And that's why both Matthew and Mark will reference their names as well as the names of their children. You can't help but think being that close in proximity to Christ would do something to a man's heart. And Simon converts to the faith, it seems. And so with him now carrying Jesus' cross, they make their way outside of the city walls. So the wall, the city would have been walled in. The current wall that is in Jerusalem, for those of you that have been there, was not the wall from Jesus' time. The current wall was built around 1200. Um, there are, it's not the exact place as the walls that were existing in Jesus' time. But the outer edge that Jesus would have went out of would have been the outer edge of the Temple Mount area. So that area is pretty close to where Jesus would have went out of. And he would have went outside of the city of Jerusalem, and there was a roadway that would lead eventually seven miles into the city of Bethany. And it was along that roadway where Jesus would be crucified. Again, just about three-tenths of a mile. We'll pick up in verse 33. When they came to a place that was called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, Sorry, wrong pipe. They offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when Jesus tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified Jesus, they divided his garments among them by casting lots, and then they sat down and kept watch over Jesus there. So the passage says that they go to this place called Golgotha. Golgotha is a Greek word. It means skull, or as it says there, it means place of a skull. You and I are probably a little more, particularly Calvary Chapel, we're probably a little more familiar with the Latin term Calvary for Golgotha. And so the English translation of the Latin term for the Greek word Golgotha is Calvary. And that's where Calvary Chapel comes from. So Calvary and Golgotha are referring to the same place. It it was a slightly elevated place outside of Jerusalem along this road that I was mentioning to you there. Uh, The way that the the rocks and the crags and so on formed, it sort of looked like if you were far back, it sort of looked like you were looking at a skull. We have a picture, I believe, here, maybe somewhere. Anything? No? No picture? There it is. Oh, that's not going to work. All right, well... Anyway, how about that, huh? No, you can't really see. But anyway, you'll see there's two big eye sockets, essentially, and that would be sort of a nose. It sort of gave this appearance from afar that it was the place of the skull. You can go by there and you can see it today. Unfortunately, today, right here is a Palestinian bus stop. 
that they decided to build in that particular place there. Um, just to the left of this, 50 yards, 30 yards or whatever, uh, is where we believe that Christ was buried. Uh, and so we go, we visit those particular places there. But Golgotha appeared to be sort of a skull, and so they called it the place of the skull. It was an ideal place for Romans to crucify victims because it was right along the main road. It was high and it was set up, and people would be able to see it. Part of the reason why the Romans chose to crucify people, part of the reason why they chose to parade them through the streets the way that they did was to send a message to everybody else. One of the things, as you know, you're probably familiar, is that they would put the name of the crime, they would nail it above the victim's head. And part of the reason why they did that was so everybody walking by would look up and like, oh my gosh, what happened to that guy? What did he do? And they would read the sign, you know, robbery, murder, insurrection, or whatever. And I'm never going to rob, rob, murder, or, or cause insurrection. What's the word, term? Surrect. Really? I think you made that up. All righty here. And so... Uh, we're not going to do that. It was a perfect place to send a message. Again, look at verse 37. They put above his head the charge, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Now, a common practice of the Romans was to offer the victim some wine to drink that would be mixed with gall. The purpose of it was to dull the mind, dull the senses. Now, that sounds very merciful. Uh, but it wasn't necessarily meant to help the victim. Uh, there's some evidence that shows they did that so that the, they would take the edge off of the victim so that the victim would suffer even longer on the cross. And so it looks like it was a very merciful thing. But Jesus was offered wine to drink mixed with gall. You remember when Jesus was a baby that the, or to, a toddler that the wise men came and they brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Myrrh is a type of gall. And so they were sort of already prophesying as to what this young baby's life was going to be. Mark tells us specifically that the type of gall was myrrh that the Romans offered to Jesus. But Jesus would not uh, accept this. It says in verse 34, when he, when he tasted it, it's not water. When he tasted it, he refused it. He would not drink it. Instead, he chose to face all that was coming on him with his senses clear, with his senses intact. And so he rejects this narcotic, which is designed to deaden the pain, among other things. And they take his raw, wounded, whipped, beaten back, and they lay him down upon uh, this post there. His arms likely would have been first tied to the crossbeam, probably untied from where, well, he didn't have to carry it, but normal victims, they would untie it, then they would retie it so that they would be there, and then they would take nails and they would drive those nails. They have found evidence of nails uh, ranging from about seven inches in length to nine inches in length, and they would take those nails, and they would drive them just above the hand into the wrist area. Uh, the Jews considered the wrist part of the hand, so when Jesus says, put your hand in, in the hole, or put your hand in the holes in mine, that he's referring likely to the wrist area there. They would then take his legs they would bend his legs uh, slightly, turning him a little bit to the side so that the feet would be flat one atop, atop another. And they would take a similar nine-inch nine inch pike and they would drive it right through uh, his feet. But notice Matthew simply says, and they crucified Jesus. None of the Gospels go into that much detail about the crucifixion itself, the process of it. And I think part of the reason is because anyone living 
in that day would have been all too familiar with the crucifixion. Jesus was not the only person ever crucified. So this wasn't some strange thing that people wouldn't have been familiar with. There are records to show that over 60,000 criminals were crucified by the Romans. In fact, on the day that Jesus is crucified, there's two additional criminals that are crucified alongside of him. And so the people would have been very familiar with all of the horrible details of crucifixion. There's no reason for any of the gospel writers to really go and to spell it out. Now, we, on the other hand, we're not as familiar with the crucifixion. Honestly, if it wasn't for a movie like The Passion of the Christ, many of us wouldn't have much of an idea. We could figure it out and we could kind of understand what is going on. For us, the cross is a place of wonder. For us, the cross is the place that Christ purchased our salvation. And so we look to the cross with hope. We put crosses around our church buildings. We, we give our children jewelry of crosses. When in the reality, the cross was a horrible means of execution. It was a cruel means to kill someone. It was designed to torture its victim until the body was unable to bear the pain any longer and simply expired or the heart itself would give out. So a criminal would die from crucifixion either by suffocation, that they were unable to take a breath anymore and thus not being able to breathe, they would eventually die or their heart would explode. Their heart would essentially just give out. I'd recommend to you, there was a Dr. William Edwards. He was a former anatomic pathologist, physician at the Mayo Clinic, and he decided, he was a believer, he decided to do a study that was published in the Journal of the, of the American Medical Association, which was entitled On the Physical Death of Jesus. That was just simply the name. On the Physical Death of Jesus, Dr. William Edwards. And he goes through the whole process of that evening and what would be going on in the body of the Lord after the beating. What would be going on in the body of the Lord having been up all night? What would be going on in the body of the Lord having sweat, as it were, great drops of blood? What would be going on as a result of the crucifixion and so on? You do a Google search, you can find it. It's, a, it's an interesting scientific read. You'll probably have to do a lot of looking up words in your, in your dictionary or whatever of what exactly is hypovemic shock and, and that stuff. But I, I think it's worth certainly your time. And so Jesus now, he's stripped of his clothing. He's now dying on a cross. And Matthew informs us that at his feet, there are people that are beginning to divide up his garments. Verse 35 says, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. The apostle John tells us that it's the soldiers that are dividing up his garments among them, and that they're doing so by casting dice or pulling straws, whatever it may be. They're casting lots. Now, the reason why they're casting lots, John tells us, is because the tunic, so you know, you got a little bit of here, clothing here and there, but the tunic itself was seamless. It was woven in one piece from top to bottom. And so they said to one another, look, let's not tear it, but let's cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. I mean, look how cruel and heartless this is. The man's dying right there on the cross, and you're at his feet negotiating who gets to take his clothes away with you. But not only was it cruel and heartless, it was prophetic. Interesting. John chapter 19, John points out, this was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. John quotes Psalm chapter 22. 
which says essentially the exact same words. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Psalm 22 is a messianic psalm in which God gives to David insight into the death of God's Messiah some 1,000 years before the death of Jesus Christ. David will speak and make references to a system of execution which hadn't even been invented yet. And yet he makes reference to it because the Lord gives it to him prophetically. And so he, he even brings up this idea that they divide my garments among them. For my clothing they cast lots. Every precise detail, even down to what the people are doing on the ground there. Verse 36, then they sat down, the soldiers, and they kept watch over Jesus uh, as he, he lay dying, or he hanged dying on the cross. Now that, that's kind of an unusual statement. Because typically what the soldiers would do is they would crucify the victim, they would make sure everything was sort of as it needed to be, and then they would leave. And the person would hang there dying, sometimes for two or three days. And yet in this particular instance, there's enough of a stir that is going around in the city, perhaps they were instructed to do so, stay there and make sure he dies. And so they set themselves up at the bottom of the, the cross there, they remain at the cross to make sure nothing happens to him, no one comes and takes his body or anything like that. Verse 37, and over his head they put the, the charge against Jesus, which read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with Jesus, one on the right and one on the left, and those who passed by, they derided him, wagging their heads, saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. Verse 41, so also... The chief priests with the scribes and the elders, they mocked Jesus, saying, He saved others, and he, can, he cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with Jesus also reviled him in the same way. In those words there in verse uh, 42, you have the first correct thing the Jewish leaders have said all day. In verse 42, they said, he saved others, he cannot save himself. And that is true. He could not save others. He could not save himself if he was going to save others. You remember in the garden when Jesus prayed, he said, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. Jesus had already reconciled in that time of prayer to the fact that there was no other way to save humanity unless he himself would give his life. And either Jesus could save himself and man could die in his sins, or Jesus could save man, and he himself would have to die. And Jesus chose the latter. A verse you're all familiar with, no doubt, or many of us here. God so loved the world, we know, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God did his part. May I ask, have you done your part? He did his part. It said, God so loved the world that he gave his son. That's his part. It goes on to say that whosoever believes in him, that's your part. Placing your faith in the fact that the only way your sin could be forgiven is to trust that on the cross that Jesus took your sin upon himself, that the sinless one became sin on your behalf. That's the gift of salvation. The gift of salvation. But as with any gift, a gift must be received. And I fear that many will come to the end of their days, some of us, among us perhaps in this room, 
will come to the end of their days, and all the while there was the gift of salvation that was sort of sitting on that table in close enough proximity for them to just take, grab, open, and make their own, and yet the gift remained unopened. And how many will come to the end of their days never having opened the gift that God in his mercy had presented to them that they might be forgiven of their sins. Jesus is the savior of the world. But what's important to understand or ask is, is he the savior of your world? You see, just because Jesus died on a cross doesn't mean that everyone is saved. People have to receive the gifts. And so, again, we ask this a lot, but we'll ask it again. Have you received the gift of salvation? Have you placed your trust in his work and appropriated his righteousness as your own? Because if you haven't, the gift sits on your kitchen table there beside you unopened. And the gift is powerless to serve any good in your life. It must be open, it must be received, and it must become our own. And may I exhort each of us here today, if you have never done that, you need to do that. And we can help you through that process if you would like to talk with someone afterwards. Let's pray. Lord, we are, we are amazed that you would allow yourself to go through the things that you went through on our behalf. Lord, you're so gracious, so kind, so merciful, so willing, Lord, to put up with sinners. And Lord, we just think of all the things that you went through that particular evening leading up to and including the cross. And, and Lord, we are amazed by your love. And Father, we pray for each person here. But I pray for those that have been in the faith for a while that maybe the wonder of these things uh, has faded a bit in their lives, in their heart, and in their mind, their thinking. Lord, I just pray that by your grace, Lord, you'd overwhelm them again with what you have done. And Father, we pray for those that have yet to receive the gift of salvation. They know all about it. They could tell others about it, but yet it has not become a part of their lives. Lord, we ask Lord, as you've done for so many of us in this room, Lord, that you'd open up their hearts. Lord, that it would all click, it would all make sense. They'd come to the end of themselves and they'd lay themselves bare before you. And Lord, that you'd save their soul, even this morning, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for listening to the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. If you would like more information about the church, its ministries, its worship services, or its small groups, please visit ccmercer.com or download the church app to your phone.